Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history, especially domestic history. As much as we love making things and trying things out. So what have you been up to? I bought a kilo of honey today. That is certainly an acquisition. (laughs) What are you going to do with the kilo of honey? Well, after the success of making beer, we've decided we're going to try and make blueberry mead. Oh my goodness. Okay, I suspected mead, but like blueberry mead. How? Yeah, well, we have we have a lot of blueberries at the moment. I'm not sure how we ended up with like multiple bags of blueberries. <laughs> Presumably they came from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, like we were probably going to do a crumble or something and then just didn't. So <laughs> blueberry mead, why not? Yeah, why not? That sounds delicious. Especially since there is a chance of being able to go to a folk thing in the summer, so starting mead now means that it'll be ready then. It's it's, uh, mead and hope. It is. I hope you will save some for me. Oh, obviously. (laughs) Amazing. Well, what have you been up to? Um, my, uh, My apple dyeing came out quite well, I think. Um... So I was experimenting with um, different kinds of natural dyes and a few weeks ago we pruned our apple trees and so I um, stripped the bark off the prunings because you can dye with that. You can also dye with the leaves of the apple tree but we don't have leaves right now. Um, So the bark, the bark comes out several different colours depending on how you modify it apparently. Um, but I just did the standard one and you don't need to use a mordant or like any fixative because of the tannins in the bark apparently um, act as a mordant, which is cool. Um, Yeah, so it comes out uh, orange. And so I dyed a piece of cotton, a fairly big piece of cotton. So like enough for, I think I'm going to make a skirt. Um, And it's it came out a really nice like peachy color which yeah i really like it um i i'm just like really excited that it worked <laughs> that that is very cool um yeah it feels it feels like being a witch with magic <laughs> potions and like cooking things up in a cauldron except i don't have a cauldron so it's a saucepan which is not quite as um exciting I mean, what is a saucepan if not a small cauldron? That is true. And I feel like any any good magic potion would be improved with use of an electric hub. Definitely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that was really cool. It did not smell great, let me tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) I I kind of didn't realise how... The kind of odours that might arise when you boil plant materials, which now that I say that sounds obvious, but um, I mean there there is a reason these sorts of trades were often pushed outside the city walls. Yeah, I think we discussed that in in the Tyrion Purple episode. Like, it, yeah, um, dying was was often one of the smellier trades <laughs> yeah it's like them and tanners that are, you just you just go over there yeah we'll be just, over here. <laughs> thank you very much like you're doing good work but don't come over here 
yeah so that's um that's kind of a success I think um I'm making biscotti tonight Ooh. this time I'll try not to overbake it like I did last time and end up with too much crunch I mean that's impressive given the normal texture of biscotti yeah I know it is supposed to be the crunch central but like I feel like I somehow managed to make it I don't know it was it was a slight danger to teeth <laughs> so I believe you are continuing our theme from last time uh yeah indeed so uh moving on from chocolate drinks which is what Liz talked about last time I'm going to be talking about uh solid chocolate so like chocolate bars and things in other forms um yeah so these are a later invention um so as Liz said in the last episode um for much of its history of being consumed chocolate was a drink um and it didn't become used in bars until the uh, the first half of the 19th century. Um, so this this is starting fairly late in the history. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pick up where you left. Well, I guess not where you left off because you gave history of stuff up to the present day. Um, but um, yeah, if if you want to know, in, we're in chocolate houses times. Yeah, yeah, basically. So if you want to know, like, the exciting ancient history stuff, go back and listen to the last episode. I am going to pick up from the 19th century. Um, so at this point, chocolate is quite popular um, in Europe and in North America as well. Um, and you've got cocoa houses where people can go to drink chocolate. And chocolate is also being mixed with milk and sugar at this point as well to make it taste nice um and all sorts of other weird stuff again listen to the last episode <laughs> yeah <laughs> so people have figured out that adding sugar to the chocolate drink makes it taste delicious um but it wasn't until uh 1847 the first chocolate bar was invented but this was made possible by an invention in 1828 called the chocolate press invented in Amsterdam in 1828 and this does exactly what it says it would it would press the chocolate beans uh, the cocoa beans and extract the cocoa butter oh from the beans that's the good so, stuff oh uh, yeah the good stuff the natural <laughs> Uh, the fat that is in the cocoa beans it would uh, it would extract that and it would leave cocoa powder uh, the fine powdered beans and this meant that well a it meant that cocoa powder um could now be used in baking and also chocolate which was previously more of a high class thing now was more affordable uh, because you could buy cocoa powder and you didn't have to have all this like fancy chocolate making stuff. You could just take the powder and mix it with water or milk. Um, but then also 
it meant that the fat could be recombined into the chocolate water um, at a measured amount to sort of smooth out the texture. Um, so that, that created the conditions. Um, this is very dramatic. Created the <laughs> conditions for uh, the first chocolate bar. Um, so this was in the 1840s, a time when price of sugar was was lowering, um, and there was increasing competition between confectionery companies. So everyone is is trying to invent something new, get get something new out, um, and then also the people are are really getting in on this whole chocolate thing, being that it's now much more popular as a drink um, and so more cocoa beans around in Europe um, and so because we're, we're full like industrial revolution at this point aren't we so it's like how how yeah. can I get rich from making <laughs> the same thing over and over again pretty much like okay how can I transform this chocolate drink that everybody loves into like an edible product like something you can carry around with you and eat and um fries um the the british company fry and sons achieved this in 1847 when uh they re recombined the cocoa butter and the chocolate liquor which is apparently what the chocolate water mix is called uh with sugar and put it in molds to set and that was like kind of the first edible chocolate bar. And it was kind of a, a dark chocolate type situation. Mm. Milk chocolate didn't come into it until 1875. When that Dan is a longer gap than I would have thought. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's a while. I mean, you would have thought. Um, but Because people would be used to having it with milk, presumably, from drinking it. Yeah, people were drinking it with milk, um, and so I, like I'm not sure exactly why, but I think it's something to do with um, it's it's more difficult to combine the the milk uh, with the heat and have it set um, because that makes sense because milk is temperamental, isn't it? When you're heating um, it, yeah, because when the the first milk chocolate was developed, it was using condensed milk. So I, I think it has to do with the milk conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was a, a Swiss confectioner, Daniel Peter, who developed the first solid milk chocolate bar um, using condensed milk. Um, and so that that kind of makes the chocolate sweeter, I guess. I mean, yeah, like the difference between dark and milk chocolate. Um, and especially if you're using condensed milk, because that stuff is quite sweet, isn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, so it makes the chocolate a lot sweeter. So now you have dark chocolate and milk chocolate. Um, yeah, so uh, Fry's also actually invented the Easter egg. And that was in 18, uh, 1873, so before the milk chocolate. Um, but... Again, um, now that edible chocolate was a thing, obviously everyone's getting in on it. 
and mm. not not too long after the invention of the solid chocolate bar um there was actually quite a lot of variety available like all of the confectionery companies basically just went this is going to be big <laughs> like we need we need to get some of this chocolate pie um and Ooh, yeah, chocolate so, pie mm, chocolate pie <laughs> <laughs> and so fries um now now needing an edge um had this idea to do with easter so people have been decorating eggs at Easter for centuries. Um, it was a very popular tradition. Um, but Fry's were the first to make a chocolate Easter egg. And as we know, that really caught on. <laughs> yeah, um, I ate one today. Uh, oh, amazing. What kind? Uh, Cadbury's Twirl. Yum. Oddly relevant for fries, because I think they bought fries at one point, didn't they? Uh, they did, in fact. Um, that is what I'm going to mention next, because after fries, uh, after fries merged with Cadbury's, um, they, they ramped up, well, Cadbury like, ramped up uh, Easter egg production and made a bunch of different kinds. And then it really took off um, going into the early 20th century. And um, yeah, like, I guess the rest is history. Um, it really did become super popular. Um, yeah, so within like 50 years after the invention of the solid chocolate bar, just all, all these many kinds of chocolate you could get and going into the early 20th century, um, yeah, it, it just, it was uh, a lot more affordable and um, there were so many more different kinds and it, it became like, yeah, I guess the go-to for if you want to give a present to someone or if you're a bit sad, if you're really happy, <laughs> like just just whenever. Chocolate is there for you. It is. It's it's a friend. It is. It is a friend. Um yeah, so um interestingly milk chocolate has it's kind of been the most popular historically. Um, dark chocolate is now becoming a lot more popular because it's marketed as being better for you because it's not mixed with as much sugar and milk. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, dark chocolate is it's produced with more cocoa solids. Um, so usually contains like 50% or more cocoa solids. And it's mixed. It, there's no milk in it usually. It's use the cocoa butter as the fat content um so it's yeah yeah obviously a lot less still sweet but like less sweet uh than a milk chocolate uh which in the eu under eu regulations any product labeled as milk chocolate must contain at least 25 percent cocoa solids um however it was agreed in 2000 that the uk ireland and malta can go down to 20% in any milk chocolate product. Um, whereas in the EU, anything under 25% is apparently normally labelled as family milk chocolate. How odd. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know I've why. I've seen bars that say like 
chocolate flavored candy bar and stuff like that mostly yeah mostly like u.s imports which have <laughs> less cocoa and uh, yeah I they I always mean... taste kind of like like bad advent calendar chocolate I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I it's in a lot of products uh, here as well. That things like um, like really cheap chocolate chip cookies and stuff that it will mm. say it contains chocolate flavored pieces or something. And I think that means it's got a bit of cocoa in it, but like not enough. Less than twenty percent, presumably. Yeah, in the US, it's ten percent. Um, but you can label and it. And that's why their chocolate is worse. Um. <laughs> controversial statement um, i don't don't want to start a transatlantic chocolate war on this podcast um because i know I, actually... I know i know we have a canadian patron if you know if you know what the rules on amount of cocoa in canada are i would be intrigued let me know <laughs> that would be interesting yeah because i i know that hershey's chocolate has a particular taste and a lot of people really like that so I'm I'm not going to weigh in on this one. <laughs> I just have strong chocolate opinion. <laughs> I yeah, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people do. Um, white chocolate, however, contains oh. cocoa butter, but no cocoa solids, therefore making it not actually technically chocolate. There you go. It's another controversial chocolate thing that I get <laughs> white chocolate. It is, it is. I mean, yeah, technically there is part of the cocoa bean in it, but mm. not chocolate. And I mean, there's also part of the cocoa bean in, like, moisturisers, so you've got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, so, I don't know, I mean, I like white chocolate in moderation, but I've never... I never felt the urge to eat an entire bar of it really i think i only really like it as like i like white hot chocolate mm -hmm. but i wouldn't just like eat a milky bar okay yeah i mean i let us know if um if our controversial chocolate opinions <laughs> i mean uh, i know nick will disagree because nick loves white chocolate Awesome. Okay, well, tweet tweet your unpopular chocolate opinions at us. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> um, oh, and in 2017, um, ruby chocolate appeared. So that's oh. made from the red cocoa bean, and it apparently has like a quite a distinctive taste as well. I it, didn't know that existed. Before. It does have. It has like a deeper flavor to it. Okay, have you tried it? Um, I've had it again in hot chocolate form. Um, okay. Because um, I think it's Costa. The last couple of of winters has done ruby hot chocolate. Ah, interesting. And, yeah, it, I wouldn't immediately place it as chocolate, but it is very nice. Okay, I really want to try this now. I think maybe there's a hot chocolate place in Rye that um, like the only thing they sell is hot chocolate and they have a lot of different kinds and it's it's like a fancy coffee shop except for chocolate. You um, have a cocoa house near you. There is a cocoa house in Rye. It's amazing. Um, and I wonder if they have ruby chocolate. I'm going to try that, hopefully. You know, in the aftertimes when 
we're allowed yeah. to go places again. Um, <laughs> soon, maybe. Soon? Question mark. Like if all if all goes well within a couple of weeks of this episode going out. <laughs> we hope. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. So <laughs> I am going to end on a fairly light note but before I do that I I I am going to go a little bit heavy because I couldn't do a whole episode on like chocolate bars and not mention um some of the less sweet things about the chocolate industry shall we say mm. um so uh, yeah you might have heard about this recently because um Nestle one of the biggest multinational companies in the world uh, is currently being investigated among other companies including Hershey and Mondelez um but is currently being um sued actually um for aiding and abetting um the illegal enslavement of children on cocoa farms in their supply chains uh, yeah, so they're they're currently investigated, being investigated for that, and there is a lawsuit being made against them uh, by the human rights firm International Rights Advocates on behalf of eight former child slaves, um, who uh, yeah, who say that they were forced to work without pay on cocoa plantations in the Ivory Coast, which, as of twenty fifteen, produced two fifths of the world's cocoa beans. Wow. There's a lot. Um, apparently, the West Africa is the currently the centre of um, of chocolate production or like chocolate growing um, in the world. So, where South America, Central South America, was the the originator of chocolate, but now um, West Africa is one of the biggest producers. Um, yeah, and so unfortunately, in the the chocolate growing industry um there is a lot of modern slavery and indentured slavery and child labor um which certainly it is difficult to ensure that that is in no part of your supply chain but it is i mean i would say it's not a controversial opinion to say that it is legally and morally the obligation of of any company uh producing chocolate from there um to ensure to the best of your ability that it is not and the uh, the arguments of most of these companies is that well it's impossible to make sure like everyone does it so um which is like but tr you could try well, you could try. Yes, that. And also, like, some companies can and do ensure that their their product is completely free of child slavery. Um, and, like, these companies are mostly small companies, but you can find them. Um, like, if you just search slavery-free chocolate, you will find a list. Um, so, yeah it is it can be done and it should be done and um i mean nestle has 
been on the record saying that water as a, as a human right is an extreme position. So I'm not entirely sure that I trust their word on anything, you know. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say this podcast is anti-Nestle. <laughs> Yeah, in 2000, at like a World Water Forum, they tried to get water uh, access to clean drinking water changed from a right to a need, which is a big difference. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you had it here, Ness, I suck. <laughs> but of course, like they're not the only one. Um, this is kind of a big problem. So I'm not trying to say that anyone should stop eating chocolate um but it's it's definitely a good thing to um to campaign um against this kind of stuff and to try and get companies to be more rigorous about it and to try and get changes in in the law to try and make companies comply with this sort of thing um so you can do that while eating your delicious chocolate i ate a lot of chocolate hobnobs while reading about this <laughs> Which, uh, which I mean, oats and chocolate is just a very good combination. Uh, yeah, chocolate knobs are the king of biscuits. There, I said it. I, I have been doing chocolate overnight oats lately. Oh, that sounds delicious. Also, that is something that really makes my accent come out, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's nothing more Lancashire than oats, right? It's, it's the food of my people. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I'm going to end this on a lighter note. Um, did you know you can 3D print chocolate? What? Mm -hmm. There are several chocolate 3D printers available on the market. Now, please do not, I repeat, do not try this at home with a normal 3D printer. It will not work. <laughs> I got really excited then because we have a friend with a 3D printer. <laughs> Yeah, um, so chocolate hardens at a much slower rate than the plastic that they use in 3D printers does. Um, and so if you try it with a normal 3D printer, it will um, it, it will be a mess and also you will probably ruin your 3D printer. <laughs> um, so these these chocolate 3D printers that are available have been developed specifically for chocolate. So they keep it like at the right temperature. They make sure that it hardens at the right rate and they're all like food grade designed. Mm. So they're designed to be used for chocolate. <laughs> um, and yeah, so you could, these, these 3D shapes can be printed that are like obviously a lot more complex than you could do with a mold. And it is incredible. I will I will post a link um, on the Twitter to some of these. I'll also post a link to the Guardian article on the Nestle lawsuit um, in case anyone is interested in that. Oh, and there is a 2010 documentary called The Dark Side of Chocolate that is available on YouTube for free that explains a lot of this stuff. Um, sorry, I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, so if you're interested in more in learning more about that, then you can go see that. Um, but yeah, the <laughs> the chocolate 3D printer is here. However, I haven't seen one cheaper than $2,000. They're kind of in the range, range of 2,000 to 5,000. So <laughs> it's kind of an investment, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, 
Fair, so what we're yeah. saying is everyone listening should become a patron at the highest level so we can get a chocolate 3D printer. <laughs> That's a worthy cause, getting bread and thread a chocolate 3D printer. <laughs> I'm Mod Paper from Probably Bad RPG Ideas, and we have a podcast. If you'd like to hear RPG advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game, then listen to the Probably Bad podcast. Available on pretty much every podcatcher. And remember to have a probably bad day. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a remarkable machine. Um, you, know, you know, hopefully this is the first wave and uh, in the future the chocolate printer will become much more affordable. And then we can all know the joy of um, taking any terrifying CAD file from the internet and downloading it into chocolate form. <laughs> Chocolate D&D miniatures, though. <laughs> that would be incredible. And then one of them gets defeated. You can just eat it. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> so many possibilities. So this is like creeping over into my other podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> Everything becomes D&D eventually. It does with me. It's a problem. <laughs> I'm serious, I was reading about like the wild side of medieval Catholicism this morning and I was just like, I could implement that, I could implement that. In D&D, be clear. Yeah, I, I am very much not the Pope. <laughs> I have several disqualifying factors. I'm glad we've made it crystal clear on this podcast that Liz is not, in fact, the Pope. This podcast is not affiliated with the Vatican. <laughs> um, but that does <laughs> lead me nicely into the local larder. Excellent. So what are we learning about today? Um, so this episode is going up pretty much the Sunday before Easter, I believe. If mm. If I'm right about when Easter is, the... It moves, the cheeky little scamp. Um, <laughs> but I want to talk about Simnel Cake. Okay. That's exciting. I All I remember about that is that it has the, the little balls on top, right? Yeah, it has um, either 11 or 12 balls of marzipan on top. Um, it's normally 11, uh, which represents the 12 apostles, apart from Judas. Ah, of course. Because... You didn't want to have Judas on your cake. It's, it's cancel culture. <laughs> cancel cake. Um, but yeah, so it goes back to the 1200s. Um, making a fruit cake with marzipan if you can afford it for either Easter or Mother's Day. It kind of changed from Mothering Sunday to Easter. Um, I might as well mention Mother's Day while while I'm here because um, Mothering Sunday used to be when apprentices and domestic servants used to go and visit their family and their mother church or the church where they were christened. Ah, 
Um, okay. Sort of around Easter time, just going back to the family and being like, hey, everyone's still alive? Great. <laughs> See you next year. Um, and because this is, you know, winter has finished, but you haven't really been able to harvest that much yet. It's also not a lot of food left. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a, a possible reason why it's generally a a fruitcake made with dried fruit. That makes sense. Um, in more modern times, it often also contains things like uh, brandy, spices, uh, candied peel, and things like that. Okay, so it's kind of like a Christmas cake? Yeah, it's it's a Christmas cake, but for Easter. <laughs> it's a Christmas cake, but wearing a different coat. Mm, one made of delicious, delicious marzipan. Mm. Um, so the name Simnel Cake probably comes from um, the Latin word uh, similar, for, meaning like fine flour, um, which probably then became Simnel, which um, in the 1200s just meant fine white bread. But is also the um, etymology of semolina, which I just enjoy because, yeah, I I like etymology, and so everyone listening has to listen to the etymology. Well, that is what having a podcast for is is for, right? It's for getting to talk about to talk about whatever you want, and there's nothing anyone else can do about it. Yeah. Um, so there's different versions of Simnel cake, um, the most well-known ones being in uh, Devizes, which is in Wiltshire, I believe, which is generally coloured with saffron and made into a star Ooh. shape. Uh, Shrewsbury, oh. which also tends to have a saffron crust. And the most famous, the sort of the common one now, which is from Bury, which is where I live, um, contains nuts, cherries, and candied peel. And that's the version with the 11 marzipan balls. Oh, so that's a Bury thing. Yeah, I don't know why that's the one that became widespread. Okay. Oh, that's uh, not fair. You have you have two famous regional things now. <laughs> I mean, you could also argue that Eccles cakes are quite famous, and they're from fairly near to Bury. That's, that's true. Uh, the Greater Manchester area has a lot of a lot of foods. What can I say? Lancashire is just great. <laughs> um, but yeah, there is there's a folk etymology. Because of course there is, mm-hmm. which attributes it to Lambert Simnel, who was um, a pretender to the throne, who pretended to be the, I believe, nephew of Edward the Fourth, after the crowning of Henry the Seventh. Lot of kings, wars of the roses. Everything's very confusing. Uh huh. Um. But basically, he ended up being pardoned by Henry the Seventh and became a cook. 
He worked, wow. in, worked in the royal kitchens um, and later became a falconer, which is cool. Um, but there's a story that he invented the simnel cake. But <laughs> he was that. born in 1477 and there's references to simnel cake in the 1200s. So he definitely didn't. But it's a fun story. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, the the folk story is always better than the real story. Yeah, I mean, Lambert Simmel's just an interesting person, I think, just because of this pretender thing, because apparently they were originally going to present him as one of the princes in the tower. Oh, that's why I, I know about that vaguely, because, yeah. yeah, the name was ringing a bell, and I think I have read about this, but, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't remember what what sort of time it happened but yeah I definitely remember a thing about like there were a few people pretending to be one of the princes in the tower yeah which I think it didn't generally go well for them mm. and there's the theory that you know the Tudors got rid of the princes in the tower and blamed Richard III which is possibly why it always ended so badly for them but mm. at basically the last minute um, the guy presenting Simnel, um, Richard, either Richard or William Simons or Simmons, because medieval spelling, um, decided to go for, oh, he's actually Edward IV's nephew instead, which might have saved his life, honestly, given how it went for other pretenders. Wow. But yeah, I mean, not really, not really relevant. But it's a fun story, and it's not food based. So when else am I going to get to talk about it on here? <laughs> so yeah, that is that is Simnel cake. It's it is interesting that you can you have Christmas cake and Simnel cake, which are virtually identical, apart from the marzipan, which, as we've learned, was only because someone in Lancashire decided to do it. But they are seen as very different things. But because you also get fruitcake at weddings traditionally, it's like fruitcake is just like, it's Christianity time, have some fruitcake. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it just is that a lot of traditional British celebration cakes are just the fruitcake in disguise. <laughs> That's just like the only fancy cake we have. But we did put all of the fancy stuff in. Exactly. I think that's why, because we didn't leave any of the fruit, the citrus peels, there's brandy, there's maybe saffron if you're from Devizes. Maybe some almonds. Oh. I mean that's yeah. what, that's where Mazapan comes from, isn't it? <laughs> I mean we just we didn't leave any of the fancy stuff for different cakes. We were just like, let's put it all in one <laughs> and it should be twice as good, right? And then we got fruitcake, which nobody likes anymore. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's partly changing tastes and partly just like, we have options now. We can have fancy yeah. things that aren't everything in one cake. We can get fruit in the winter now. <laughs> it's very exciting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is that is single cake. Went places I didn't expect it to, but I like it. Mm. Um, if you want, if you want to get us one step closer towards a chocolate three D printer, 
Um, <laughs> we do have a Patreon, as I said. It's just a bread and thread where you can get access to recipes. Um, if you give us enough money, we'll make you a, your own special bonus episode. And we have a Discord server. We also have a Twitter account at Bread and Thread, uh, where you can find out what is coming up next, um, see what we're up to, and let us know your unpopular chocolate opinions. And if if you don't tweet and you want to yell at us about chocolate anyway, which I welcome, um, you can email <laughs> Bread and Thread Podcast at gmail.com. It's fine. I'm the one that checks the emails. Hazel doesn't have to see the yelling. But I'll probably hear it. Oh yeah, well I will communicate it. <laughs> if we get any angry emails in all caps, can you just like shout them at me over the phone? Definitely. Awesome. Um, so <laughs> on that note, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time, which I believe will be Nick guesting to tell us about Italian courtly dress manners, which is not grammar, but you know what I mean. <laughs> fancy, fancy, fancy clothes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>